So we're in the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 6. And we're reading verses, uh, well, we're not going to read it. We're just going to scan over it because we read it last week. Chapter 6 deals with the seals of the living God. And I'm starting on the sixth seal for a particular reason. And that reason is this. I believe that's the time in which we're living in. Now, it would take me all today to prove that. So you're just going to have to take my word for it. We'll study that later. But the sixth seal is the time in which we are living in right now. And if you look at verse 12, it, it starts off with some horrific, catastrophic events. Earthquake, sun and moon doesn't shine, the stars fall. Then the next verse is the second coming of Jesus. And, you, and you, you look at me and go, well, come on, Joe, is that really the time in which we're living in? And I would say yes. And again, we'll have to study to show that it is. So we just have to take my word for it. Now, this makes the question at the end much more relevant. Who will be able to stand? That's the question I want to leave with you. Who's going to be able to stand? The people who are asking this question aren't saved. If you look at the text, there are people who are crying for the rocks to fall on them. They're not saved, right? Because when you see Jesus, hopefully you're not going to be crying for the rocks. You're going to throw your hands up and say, it's about time. Where have you been? You know, last week we then went to the first Samuel and we talked about God's people. And that was done deliberate. Because first Samuel is when the children of Israel entered into the Canaan. Canaan, uh, the promised land, entered to Canaan. This was a land that's flowing with milk and honey. This was the promised land. This was where they were to live forever. And Deuteronomy 28 gives the promises of, of blessings if they're faithful. If you obey my statutes, if you obey my commandments, you will prosper in everything you do. No enemy will stand before you. That was a promise. That was a promise. Well, we looked at 1 Samuel, and we see the Philistines are not only harassing the children of Israel, they're fighting against them. The first time they fight, they only lose 4,000 men. So they come back and they say, oh, what happened? God is not with us. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was they weren't with God. And the point I'm trying to make here is that that period of time assimilates our time today. No different. The struggles that they were having when they entered into this promised land is the same struggles that we have today. We want to be like everybody else. We want to look like everybody else. We want to watch and talk and, and do everything that everybody else is doing. It's the same problem. 
So when they got into trouble, when the enemy came, they couldn't stand. They couldn't stand. And you know the story. They, they said, well, God, God is not with us, so hey, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. Do you see what's wrong with that? You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to run back to church and get the cross, and I'm going to run it, and, and maybe, we'll, maybe we'll win. So they go and get the, the Ark of the Covenant, and they lose. They lose 30,000 men, and the Ark of the Covenant is taken. And you know the story. God plagued the Philistines. They sent it back. Take this thing, please. It's killing us. It really was killing them. And when the children of Israel got it, they were so happy. They had a big sacrifice. And then someone had the idea, I wonder what it, what it looks like inside. And remember I told you when we first started this study that when Adam and Eve first met with Jesus, messed with God, it was face to face. But when Moses asked to see God's face, what did he say? You can't see my face and live. These guys open up the ark, it still represented God. 50,000 men died. And what did they say? Who can stand before this holy God? I tell you, this is our time. This is our time. So I'm going to read this last part of Revelation. Uh, it says, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And we're going to go in chapter 7, because that's where the answer is. That's where the answer is. Okay, so let's read this. It says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, <clears throat> having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the tree, trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. All right. That's the answer. Who will be able to stand? Those who are sealed in their foreheads by God. Okay? So now what's the next question? How do I get that? Right? How, how do I get that ceiling? If it's that important, well, how important is it? Well, let's look at Revelation 22 real quick. Revelation 22 states, says, uh, and he showed me a pure river water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, 
And in the middle of the street and on either side of the rivers was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruit, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. This is amazing. That when, even once we are transformed and we are in heaven, there's a lot of healing that we have to go through because of the sin that we've lived through. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. So everybody who's in heaven will have the name of the Father in their foreheads. That's what it says, right? Then what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you. It means that we will have his character. That his character will be in our brains. Well, how does that happen? And see, this is where the meat comes in. This is where it gets important because this is how we're going to get sealed. If we look at Ephesians chapter 1, and we start with verse 11, it gives us, Paul gives us this idea. Not idea. He gives us the plan. And let me read this for you. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Now, who gets an inheritance? Your next door neighbor from you? Uh-uh. You get an inheritance because you're part of the family. Amen. So it says here, we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his counsel and of his will. That means that everybody in the world was predestined to be saved. Did you know that? Did God just die for those that loved him? He died for everybody. So everybody in the world was predestined to be saved, but everybody won't be saved. And it says here that we who first trusted in Christ shall be to the praise of his glory. Now we're getting to the meat. In him, that is Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. Oh, I want that to sink in here. Because this is like, this is like the foundation of my whole talk. It says, in him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, what is the word of truth? The gospel of salvation. What is the gospel? That Jesus came, he took our place, because when God told Adam, if you sin, you will die, you know, that was law. He took our place, then he came and lived a perfect life, and now we can claim his righteousness. Amen. So that's the gospel. And it says, the gospel of in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were 
sealed with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what's the process? You heard the gospel. You opened up your heart. God's Spirit didn't... You opened up your heart, you allowed Him in, and, he, and you believed. And then God then seals you. What does it mean to be sealed? Paul explains that. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. What's our inheritance? Eternal life with the God the Father. Living with the Father. Living with Jesus. That's, that's, our, that's our inheritance. And it says, until the redemption of the purchased possession, that's us, by the way, the purchased possession, because he had to die to save us, until the redemption, we're redeemed to the praise of his glory. That's powerful, man. And Paul doesn't spare this. He says it again here in chapter 4. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit of God will seal us until Jesus comes to redeem us. That's what it says. That's what it says. Okay, so we've answered that question. So now you must be wondering, why did I go through the sanctuary why did we go through the book of Daniel? So let's look back. When we talked about the sanctuary, Exodus 25, 8, it says that God told Moses, build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. I want to be with you. Just build a sanctuary, but build it after the pattern. Well, what pattern? Well, he gave him a pattern. He gave him specific directions of every piece of furniture and every ceremony that was supposed to happen according to the pattern. Now that's important, we'll come back to it. When, we, when I gave you the, I didn't give you a diagram, I wish I could have, but I don't think you could have seen it. We said it was made up of two compartments in one open court. And we have the sinner, which is us, coming in with the Lamb representing Christ, we confess our sins over the Lamb in front of the priest, who's Christ as well. We take the life of the Lamb. This is, this is then. They sacrificed the Lamb. The priest caught the blood representing Christ, Christ, Christ. He takes it into the outer court. He puts the blood on the altar of burnt offerings, he takes it into the holy place, and he sprinkles the blood before the veil, and he puts the blood on the horn of the altar of incense. Now, last week, we talked about the articles of furniture. We said there was a lampstand made up of seven lamps. This, is, this will be real important when we study Revelation. But the purpose or the job of the priest was to keep the light on. Now, that lamp represented, you know what I'm going to say, Jesus. 
because Jesus is the light of the world, right? The priest then, his job was to pour the oil. Make sure that that light never goes out. Never goes out. It was his responsibility. Remember, the priest represents Jesus. The oil represents the Holy Spirit. And that light, here's Jesus putting his, he's keeping the light on. This is significant when we study the seven churches because he's walking among the lampstands. He's servicing it. Too much information right now? Let's move on. <laughs> Table of showbread. That's the next article of furniture. Made up of 12 pieces of bread. The bread represented who? Jesus. Absolutely. Jesus, the bread of life. What is the bread of life? His word, right? But it also represented God's people. There were 12 pieces of bread. How many tribes were there? How many disciples were there? Okay, well, we'll use that later on. Every seventh day, the bread was changed. Okay? So the sinner came in. He confessed his sins. The sin was transferred to the blood. The blood was taken inside this, the, most, the holy place. And this happened every day, every day, every day. People bringing in their, their confessing their sins, they bring in these animals, these animals are being destroyed, are, are killed, and this represented God's thought of sin. Now, if we did that here, how messy would our church be? If everybody brought a lamb, a pigeon dove, according to what you could afford, every day you brought something and it was sacrificed here, this place would stink. But once a year, the sanctuary was cleansed. And it was called the Day of Atonement. Now you say, well, they've already confessed their sins and Jesus took it and put it into the sanctuary. That's true, but there's a record still of the sin. And this Day of Atonement was for the cleansing of the sanctuary. Now, this is foundational information in our understanding the book of Revelations. Because the book of Revelation talks about a day of judgment. The day of atonement was a day of judgment. Everybody in the camp had to stop. It was, no matter what day it was, it was a special day, it was a Sabbath, they stopped. That whole week prior, they agonized with God. They looked within themselves to see if there was any sin in their hearts. And on the very day, the high priest went into the very presence of God. He initially brought a lamb for himself, and he offered that. But then he brought a goat, two goats. One was a scapegoat, one was represented Jesus. They sacrificed the goat. That goat... Was, blood was taken into the holy place and sprinkled before the Ark of the Covenant. Again, I'm not going to go further than that. Uh, each of these topics takes a, a long time within itself. The next thing I talked to you about was the book of Daniel. 
And the reason why I brought up the book of Daniel because there were certain things that happened in the book of Daniel that, that you already know, but we're trying to connect the dots so that it all makes sense. We initially talked in chapter 2 about the statue. And it represented the different nations. And we're just focusing on the iron legs now. I'm not going to go back and talk about what it, the, the head. I'm not going to do that. I'm just looking at the legs because the legs represent iron legs. Rome. Okay. We looked at the vision in chapter 7. The vision in chapter 7 gave us animals again. But when it came to that third fourth beast this beast could not be described had iron teeth had ten horns it represented Rome and then that one horn came up later that disrupted three of the other horns now why is this significant why is this important there are key time tables that were given the 1260 days, the 2300 days, the 70 week prophecy, all these time periods were given that we will use in our understanding of Revelation. So this is all foundational, but this one thing I want to leave with you with the little horn. Now last week I kind of hit on it a little bit, but I had to write it down so I wouldn't forget. And I may have forgot my piece of paper that I shouldn't forget. And I have to do it from memory. But I guess that's okay too. I know I have it here. Oh, here it is. No, that's not it. Well, let's talk while we're, we're getting it together. Revelation chapter 7 then talks about this little horn. You see, there's a lot of confusion out there in the evangelical world about this little horn. Some people think it came out of the Grecian Empire. It did not. They got this antithesis guy, some little runt who was king for 10 years. He was never great. He did persecute the Jews. He did offer a pig on the, on the altar, all, 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 uh, the covenant, Ark of the Covenant, defiling the temple. But he was, only a, he, he was never great. He didn't conquer anybody. If you look at the legs, see, we have to look at the whole book. You look at the legs, you see the iron, the black iron, extending down into the toes. I used to think, oh, those are just different nations. But now, this is a progression of the thought process that originated during the time of, of Rome. If you don't believe me, look around you. Look how many chief justices are. Uh, you know what I mean. Look how many people in government that's going to make decisions for you and me. Look how many of them run this country now. So this, this, this part is really crucial. I want you to understand because the little horn was given the time period of 1260 days, days to year, that's the prophecy conversion. It, it spoke pompous words. It persecuted the saints of the Most High. 
If you go to chapter 8 of, da of Daniel, it expounds on it a little bit more, but it's a little confusing in chapter 8 because in chapter 8, it implies that the horn came out of Greece. It did not. It came from the direction, the four winds. We can clarify that later. The horn in chapter 8 represents all of Rome. And this is where it really significantly starts talking about issues. Because it says the same thing. It magnified itself uh, to the host of heaven. It went to change times and laws. Sabbath. It persecuted the saints. It even elevated itself to the, how does he put it, the host. It, in essence, it even crucified Jesus. And once you read that, if you know history, under which nation was Jesus crucified under? It, it, it's, so, it's so easy, you wonder, how can people miss that? But they do. They do it for a particular reason. It also says, and i got to read this, because I don't want to butcher it. It says, it changed, um, oh, okay, and the continual burnt offerings was taken away from him, and the place of the sanctuary was overthrown. The continual burnt offerings. Now, this is a question I'm going to leave with you here. Was there a temple after A.D. 70? Did the Jews have a temple? No. When was it destroyed? I told you. A.D. 70. Rome came in and destroyed it. Rome destroyed it. Rome persecuted Christ, persecuted his, his people. Rome did that. But then this time period, this 1260-year period, is significant because the actual foundation of salvation was attacked. Now what do I mean by that? When I talk to you about the sanctuary, who was the primary figure of the sanctuary? Jesus. Jesus represented the, the lamb, the blood, the priest, the furniture, bread of life, Light, uh, uh, light of the world. He represented the art, the the incense. He combined his his righteousness with his own blood, representing us. It is his righteousness that saves us. That's the gospel, and that's what the devil attacked. He attacked it right from the beginning. If you look at right from the beginning, look at Cain and Abel. Cain, Abel brings the lamb. Cain brings fruit. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. The devil was trying to change the program right from the beginning. But he was successful doing the 1260-day prophecy, doing that 1260-day time, when this image ruled the world. He was successful. So how was he successful? What did he do? He said, there's a man on earth that will represent God. From now on, you talk to that man. You don't have to talk to God. Talk to this man. Number two, 
He changed the times and laws. We talked about that. What else did he do? Instead of, I said this last week, instead of you praying to the Father or praying to Jesus, they said, you need to pray to Mary. Because you know, Mary's much more compassionate than Jesus. She, she is. You know how these moms are. They're all lovey-dovey. Dad's hard. No, mom's sweet. You know. So you need to pray to Mary. You can pray to the saints. You can pray to the saints and ask for forgiveness of sin. Okay? What was the purpose? Take our eyes off Jesus. Take a, to change the image of the Father, the image of the Son, to a harsh dictator. Not the loving God that he is. They tried to change that, and they were successful. And the Bible said, that, what is so awesome is that it's, this is all in the Word of God. It said it would happen, and it did. It did. And this continual burnt offerings. We said the sanctuary was destroyed in A.D. 70. So there was no sanctuary. But it still talks about this continual burning offering. Where was that occurring? In heaven. You got to read Hebrews. Is there a sanctuary in heaven? You read Revelation, there definitely is. There definitely is. And what is, the perp what is Jesus doing for you and me right now? He's, he's interceding for us. He's, he's accepting your sin. And what is he applying? He's applying his own blood. And then he applies his righteousness to us. Then he presents us to the most holy place. In essence, he presents us to the Father. Because that's, at this point, that's the only way we can, we will ever be able to come into the presence of God. He was very successful in changing that. There's, I'm going to close here. Ezekiel 37 tells a story. In Ezekiel 37, let's turn to it. God picks up Ezekiel. Let's read it. And the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones. You remember uh, when we were talking about the battle with Israel and the Philistines? 30,000 men died. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people to be buried. You know what? They didn't bury them. They left them there. And their bones laid out in the battlefield. You could come across places where battles took place and just nothing but bleached out bones. That's all. Verse 2. Then he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. <laughs> what would you have said? <laughs> 
Again, he said to me, sorry, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Can you imagine Ezekiel? You want me to prophesy to some dried out bones. So he did. It says here, Thus said the Lord God, anyway, we're jumping down to, uh, it says, Thus said the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. Verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. <laughs> what would you have done? Got up and ran? It says there was a noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together, bone to bone. What's he doing? He's prophesying. What's he prophesying? The word of God. The truth. It says, indeed, I looked at the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. There was no breath in them. He also said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus said the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood there on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Did you know that you and I are represented by those dead bones? True story. We represent those dead bones. And God has commanded his people to, to study his word. And by the studying of his word, we are transformed. And the significant about this is it's just so awesome that if God can take us dry bones and fill us and make us into living beings that stand for him, he can do anything. Amen. And this is the time in which we are living in. To stand. And the way you will stand is by focusing on the gospel and allowing it to fill your heart and transform your character. It's the only way. The gospel is Jesus dying for you and representing you in heaven. And he wants to save you. So this morning as we close, I pray that you will study on your own, that the Word of God will fill your heart, and we all will be transformed from these dry bones to living soldiers fighting for Jesus. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice.
for your continuing effort to save us. We thank you, Lord, for, for spending so much time trying to save a people who don't want to be saved at times. We thank you, Lord, for your love and your mercy and for the fact that we individually can come before you and ask for forgiveness and you, most high God, you, Emmanuel, will forgive us and then cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's your joy. And we thank you, Father, for that in Jesus' name. Amen.